0: Hi, I'm Victor Milligan.
1: And I'm Jennifer Isabella. Your
0: co-host for Forest Search Podcast, What It Means. We explore the major changes in the market influencing executive priorities. Here with us today is Andy Hoare, Vice President and Principal Analyst to talk about death of a salesman two years later. Welcome, Andy.
2: Thanks. Good to be here.
0: So uh, the titling is rather provocative, Death of a B2B Salesman. Um, so can you kind of ground us in what the research was two years ago to which this building from? Because this is, again, this is a fairly provocative start to a conversation.
2: Yeah, it gets a lot of people's attention when you use that title, no doubt. Well we started hearing from clients, what they were seeing was that customers wanted to go buy from them in a self-serve environment. And as you we've know, written in our research that really buying and selling is a spectrum. You know, there's a self serve dimension for research and buying and even servicing. And there's a full serve dimension, which is the more conventional, traditional approach where you talk to a salesperson or visit a branch and talk to maybe a customer service rep or whatever they call them, right? And you can research there, you can buy there, and you can service there. What we've seen is that the conventional approach has been broadened for this unconventional approach. And so now it is the case that B2B buyers, professional and non-professional buyers, are choosing how they want to interact with companies. And companies can either choose to force them into a channel that the company is comfortable with, or, and you know, this is what we talk at Forrester about customer obsession. The other way is the way to go, which is for the companies to accommodate.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. We had a conversation with Pascal Masca about industrial digital platforms, and one of the key principles of that is. Many of the behaviors and norms that existed in the B2C space are invading the B2B space. In this case, it was platforms. But in in your example, it's really the idea that it is a natural thing for a customer to want to do discovery on their terms and expect that the assets are there and then expect that they'll engage when they wish to engage. The same dynamic of a customer taking control of the channel is, is now infiltrated the B2B space. Is that sort of kind of how we should think of it?
2: It is. In fact, we have a term for it. We call it consumerization that there's been a consumerization of B2B. And so it's now the case that, you know, B2B buyers, all of whom, by the way, are B2C consumers, every single one of them. It's not as though you have a B2C consumer experience that blows you away on Amazon or or Nordstrom or Sephora or Charles Schwab or wherever you're going to go. And then all of a sudden go to work and say, well, now I expect a much worse customer experience. And I'm happy with that.
0: I'm taking from your comment, Andy, that the B2B companies may be a little bit reticent in making the big changes to the nature of which they sell, then they organize their sales force. So, you know, whereas in the B2C world, if I don't adjust to the customer, I don't adapt to those changes, I'll start seeing my P&L rather quickly. So are B2B companies sort of rallying around this change, or are they kind of holding back and and trying to hold on to their channels as long as they can?
2: You know, I would say reticent is an understatement. And I say that facetiously because... It is the case that B2B companies need to be just as flexible, nimble, and adaptable as B2C companies. But the draw toward inertia is every bit as strong, if not stronger, in B2B. So companies are not going to change unless they have to change. The difference between B2B and B2C is that in the B2C space, they were forced to change years ago. Amazon, for better or worse, chose that as their first destination. And because they did, they really did most of their damage there uh, to B2C companies. The same thing has started to happen in B2B.
1: So Andy, we just talked about the consumerization, the B2B buyers, but I think you have some really interesting numbers to, to prove that point out. Can you talk a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, so we often say that, you know, customer demand is driving this. It's really power shifted from the supply side to the demand side. And we did talk about consumerization, which is a qualitative characterization, but quantitatively, we did a survey in 2015 uh, as a precursor, actually, to the death of a B2B salesman research then. And we asked, you know, we asked the question several different ways, but essentially it was, you know, do you prefer doing research online on your own, or do you prefer talking to a sales rep for doing that research? And what we found was 53% of respondents said that they consider gathering information online on their own superior to interacting with a sales representative. That was in 2015. We repeated the research in 2017, and that number had grown from 53% to 68%, which is pretty dramatic. That tells me that consumerization has grown and that B2B buyers want to and are seeking new ways to do this kind of research online on their own. Which doesn't mean that sales reps aren't useful. I'm just saying they want this. And if you give it to them, they will take advantage of it. And that will actually make it possible for sales reps to focus on more value-added activity.
1: I would venture to say that that number has grown, but also perhaps that the expectations of those buyers in that digital environment has grown too, right? That there's not just more people expecting or would prefer to do research online, but then the experience that they expect in that environment is also greater.
2: Yeah, well, I think it's it's also become pretty clear that uh, you know B two B buyers are expecting everything they're getting the consumer space and more. It's interesting to note that B two B buyers are actually um, are, are actually more demanding than B two C mm. buyers are in some regards. One of them is getting in and getting out. You know, B two C buyers again, it's a gross generalization here, but I think it's instructive. Um, see, maybe shopping is what they call it as an experience, you know, and they browse B2B buyers don't call it shopping. It's called buying and, and they don't browse, they buy. And so for B2B buyers, many times they want to get in and they want to get out. And it makes sense because when you're a consumer, you know, you're at home, it's your own time. You don't have to check with somebody else. You, know, you don't have other pressing issues necessarily, it might be actually a labor of love. Whereas in B2B, it's not a labor of love. It's a means to an end of me making money for my business. So oftentimes, they want to get in and get out as quickly as possible. In fact, many people characterize B2B buying as hinged on efficiency. When it comes to that, even more reason to remove friction in the process. Mm-hmm.
0: So I'm going to go back to your numbers for a second. 68% of the buyers want a, a good digital experience. And to your point, Jen, they're expecting that experience to be better and better. Sort of the Amazon effect is hitting twice. And I imagine this is a bit like water going downhill, which is it might be true that the companies are reticent to change, but at some point in time, it is no longer elective surgery. This is a mandate for the market to make these changes. The question is how fast you go and how far behind are you from your competitors in making these change? in a market where there's finite consultative sales talent on the street.
2: Well, and I'll extend your metaphor about elective surgery. You'd be surprised how many people will put off elective surgery, even to the point of dying. And, you know, it is a powerful, powerful thing to not want to change. What we've seen a surprising angle on this, actually, has been that many distributors, for example, have been pressured into going digital from manufacturers. And many manufacturers have been pressured going digital from distributors. So it's not even coming organically from customer demand. It's coming from their own supply chain and ecosystem. Now, ultimately, those people are driven by customers. So at the end of the day, customers are driving all this, but it can arrive at your doorstep in a number of different ways.
0: So Andy, can we put some numbers to this? How many jobs are at risk between, let's say, now and 2020?
2: So we did a pretty extensive analysis of BOS data and we said, look, you know, what is the likelihood that this particular type of salesperson is going to be displaced? And that's the term I would use here is displaced. And we compiled a list and we did a bottom-up analysis. And the number we came to was that between the years 2012 and 2020, we're going to see a net displacement of a million sales reps. What that means is that I think it's roughly about 600,000 of them are what we characterize as order takers.
0: Yeah, and this and this just very quick. This ties to, you know, we did a podcast with J.P. Gounder saying there is, a, there is a real job impact to automation. It simplifies and makes the business more efficient, but it does come at the expense of jobs that were traditionally a more manual in nature and inefficient in nature.
1: Or allows people to focus on larger, more strategic tasks, too.
2: In this document, we actually also predict that the number of consultative sellers is going to increase.
1: Right.
2: So the the issue, though, is it's against a smaller base. And I think this is what we've seen across you know, all of the research around automation is they say on net there will be a decline. But that's because the people who are going to be displaced or lose their jobs greatly out the number of the ones who are going to gain new jobs. But it doesn't mean there aren't going to be people who gain new jobs. It's just fewer of them. In our case with sales reps, as we said earlier, more skilled, more experienced, more seasoned, which means more expensive, less likely less able to hire and they don't grow in trees. So what we think is that, you know, it's going to force companies to rethink the position. It's no longer about just taking orders. It's really about what, what Nike did where they eliminated the idea of having a sales rep go to Foot Locker and use carbon paper and write down orders and uh, shake the guy's hand and walk off and say, your shoes will be here next month. It's now about having those customers, like Foot Locker, order the shoes directly from Nike.net, which is their portal, and that former sales representative, who is now more like a consultative or a consultant, let's say, sits down with Foot Locker and says, how do we maximize your you know, shoe revenue per square foot, or how do we get you the latest, um, you know, shoe designs? How do we make you a more successful business? Which, by the way, I don't know about you guys, but that doesn't sound like selling to me. That sounds like consulting.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because one of the impacts of digital platforms is you you change the nature of supply chain, which means you change the nature of selling up and down the supply chain. And the customer-supply relationship is much more even-keeled. It's much more of a joint problem-solving or collaborative or participant sport, versus I continue to sell up and down the supply chain. Co-creation, so creation,
1: co-innovation. Yeah, yeah.
0: So the idea that I'm going to help FootLocker sort of run their business differently that helps me and them at the same time is much more of a collaborative moment than than necessarily supply chain moment.
2: Well and plus we we all know salespeople and the one thing they hate more than not having any sales at all are a bunch of unqualified leads. And what digital enables is pre-qualification.
0: It seems to me, though, from a CEO perspective, there's a financial carrot here because one way to look at this is that I can invest a level of dollars in my digital environment and reduce my total sales costs, and the outcome would be I still grow at a much lower cost of sale. Do the CEOs see the financial carrot of this?
2: I would say there are three reasons people should do digital. One is that you can lower the cost to serve, which is what you referenced. Another one is that you can increase incremental revenue uh, by actually broadening the market and capturing customers online that otherwise wouldn't be able to capture, like low-frequency purchasers, uh, people who buy in small quantities. Those are, those are customers that a lot of B2B companies that are Salesforce-driven don't capture because they can't, to reference the first point, they can't afford to put a salesperson on that.
0: No, I understand. I mean, the whole the whole concept of digital allows you to expand greatly your addressable market at little or no cost is a, is a really big opportunity, so it's just hard to imagine for companies that think of the world through territory
2: planning. Well, and the third thing is, uh, I mentioned there were three, just to complete the thought. There's the lower cost to serve, higher incremental revenue, and the last one is the most important one, but sadly, because it's the qualitative metric, I think it's also the one that tends to be approached as the third priority, and that's higher customer satisfaction. We have found in our research, it's very clear, digital, in particular, omni-channel, which is taking, in both cases, you're taking somebody who's offline only and moving them into an online environment, which could be exclusively online, although not likely. More likely, omni-channel, which is online and offline. Uh, They end up spending more money. They end up Uh, serving customers with much lower unit economic costs, uh, and those customers are happier. It's a win-win-win. And so you might be asking yourself, why isn't everybody doing it then? And not to ask the questions and answer them, but um, the reality is, is because it's different.
0: Well, I think part of the thought process that I have is a CEO may see this more as a greenfield opportunity because of the, the reasons you described, but the chief sales officer grew up in a place where sales operated in a certain way. So what is normal to them is comfortable. And your, your research suggests that they they have to lead a very, very different type of organization, one that is more digitally tuned and they may not be digitally tuned. I mean, there's some big changes for the person running the sales force that's just not familiar to them.
1: Yeah, can we touch on what happens to the salespeople or what is the transition? Andy, you talk a little bit about this sort of consultant sales rep. Can you, can you talk a little bit about that?
2: Well, I think the way to think about this is the person is the head of sales. This is the head of offline sales or channel sales. It's the head of, he or she is the head of sales. So in Death of a BDB Salesman, the original and repeated in Death of a BDB Salesman two years later, we have a matrix where we talk about you know the complexity of the product or service mapped against the complexity of the biodynamic. And if it's, for example, a really simple product that, sold to a very simple buyer dynamic, so like an individual in a company buying Post-it notes, then that really lends itself to um, a situation where it's a self-serve sale. And that used to be, in a more conventional sales um, environment, that used to be what we call an order taker. On the other end of the spectrum, where it's a more complex product or service and it's a more complex buyer environment, So for example, selling an ERP system to a global multinational corporation, you're not going to just go to somebody's website, download the ERP, plug it in and everybody's going to use it. You want, you know, there's a higher degree of risk here. And so you want somebody to consult with you to understand your needs. And by the way, it's a big ticket purchase. So you're not going to just pay $5 million with your credit card on the website. So, In that environment, you know, what sellers need to do is they need to offer people who are more consultative, not people who are just taking the order, because there is no taking an order for an ERP system for a global multinational company.
0: And I think that, I mean, to me, that's kind of the problem because there's a whole industry formed around solution selling. This was a big, scary thing. And this has been in place for a while of teaching salespeople to problem solve and listen to the clients on their terms and really understand the local environment, all those different pieces. I mean, there's an industry that formed around that, that's still vibrant. And if I, if I play that forward, you have all these companies fighting for very few people that are comfortable with and capable of doing solution selling. And I mean, I kind of wonder whether that's a big inhibitor to this, this
2: transition. It is. And I'll make it even more complicated and scarier for companies is increasingly these decisions, especially the more important, you know, more complex product or service, more complex buyer environment, you're increasingly selling to the C suite.
0: So Andy, can you talk about companies that have made this change? They might have been reticent at first, but they saw the tea leaves, they wanted to get the talent on the street, and they started making the changes. What does it look like? How fast does it take? And you know sort of what do the financials look like?
2: Yeah, there are a whole bunch of examples of companies that have you know, reduce their cost profile, increase income revenue, driven up, driven up um, customer satisfaction. So I'll, I'll take maybe each one of them, example of each. So one of my favorite examples on the cost side is Coca-Cola um, said publicly that they reduced their average cost per interaction by 85% by moving offline B2B customers online. What does that mean? Well, it meant that before they had people taking orders over the phone and then by, you know, inviting those customers to order online and incenting them to do so and then providing a compelling customer experience, they went from having to pay dollars per order to literally fractions of a penny per order. So, you know, from a cost perspective, that's really compelling, especially when you're not even hurting your customers along the way. You're, in fact, helping them. From an incremental revenue perspective, uh, a couple of examples here, U.S. Foods, uh, said that when customers move from being offline only to online customers, whether they're omnichannel or online only, they instantly, and this is the term they use, instantly spent 5% more. So just the very fact of channel shifting them into any sort of online environment bumped up the incremental, bumped up the revenue by 5%. So there's a lot of evidence on both the cost side and the incremental revenue side that uh, by moving from an offline environment to an online environment, uh, you save money, you drive more revenue, uh, and frankly, you free up your sales reps to do higher value-added stuff.
0: More and more of those brands are going direct to market as well. So there's a sort of a dual value of that digital environment. One is I I work better within the supply chain to which I'm already working. The second one is I now have the capability to go direct and pick up either I expanded my addressable market or I'm picking up sales I would otherwise not not had. Is that happening as well?
2: It is. So, uh, you know, there are ways to acquire customers that were either too expensive to serve before, too difficult to serve before, or frankly, not aware of the lines of business you offer. I mean, I've heard several stories from clients who said, yeah, we have, you know, a, a SKU count of, say, thousands of SKUs. And we have these customers that come in and buy like two or three of our SKUs once or twice a year. And we never understood why they were only buying those things. Well, it was, maybe it was a carryover from an old, you know, purchasing environment. Maybe it's all they knew that you sold, or maybe that was one item that they bought from you once and they've been happy with,
0: but. Or, or it might be that, you know, one of the things you find in Salesforce is they get comfortable with certain tools in the bag, but not all the tools in the bag. And so they'll sell what they're comfortable and won't sell what they're not comfortable with, and you get this problem of you you can't sell the whole SKU set, as you say, and you can't enrich from your current base of business. So digital gives you both opportunities.
2: That's actually exactly right. And I would say that's another reason why is it's a legacy issue. It could be a sales rep that you know that's what they chose to sell, and they sold that one thing, you know, and so they sang one song, they sang it very well, and they repeated it over and over and over again. But more importantly, when you move into an online environment, you can have software and algorithms start introducing them to other products. And that alone, that alone could drive incremental revenue. Right. Know you have these products. They may only buy certain products from you. You can incent them to try other products. And it doesn't cost you anything because software is doing
0: it. Right, and with the onset of, of machine learning and AI gives you this highly powerful recommendation engine, Uh, again, going back to the Amazon effect, which is now I'm serving up ideas for buyers that that relate to them, either them as a company or people that look just like them.
2: Amazon said in 2006 that 35% of their total revenue came from recommendations. So that means one-third of all of Amazon's revenue in 2006 came from computer-generated recommendations. Now, imagine if you could marry that up with customers who are infrequent purchasers or small ticket purchasers, marry up that technology, like you just mentioned, you know, machine learning, uh, artificial intelligence, and just turn it loose. Plus, you
0: have a fundamental shift in pipeline velocity. I mean, the deals are instant versus enrichment deal that could take 30, 40, 60 days to, to get to.
2: Totally agree.
0: So we started off with a concept of death of a salesman. We went to tsunamis, earthquakes, floods, elective surgery, went back to death. This is a big change for companies, a big change for sales forces. It's a hard task for either the person heading sales or the, the salespeople themselves sort of finding new jobs that have meaning and they can contribute to. So in, in, as you look at the full body of research, Andy, what does it all mean?
2: Well, actually, nothing less than companies really rethinking You know how they market to sell and service their customers. I mean, I hate to, I don't think that's an overstatement in any way, shape or form. This includes where they spend their customer acquisition dollars, how they use their channels, who they hire to interact with customers. I mean, the reality is this is gonna change your company from top to bottom because you can't interact so fundamentally differently with a customer and not have it fundamentally change your company.
1: Thanks a lot for joining us, Andy.
2: Yeah, thank you very much for having me. That was great. Thank you.
1: If you like what you heard today, please subscribe to Forrester's What It Means podcast on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or TuneIn. And don't forget to leave us a review. To continue the conversation, follow Forrester on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks for listening.